Um, I guess today is a little bittersweet. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been celebrating graduations, and I'm saying goodbye to a couple of my residents. It's been with me for five years again tonight. And uh, I guess I'm saying goodbye to this class for another year. I hope the last 10 weeks have been a blessing to you as they have been to me. So many of you responded to my request to give a thank you offering to our speakers, and I've left a basket out front if you want to continue in that vein. And again, I thank you all for a great year of studying this class. I've been enriched by having you here, and I hope you come back next year and we can continue our studies. I've already had several speakers come forward with ideas, and, and this is a, a joy to me. Oftentimes I'm sending out, hey, could you speak on this? Could you? Already I've had uh, offers uh, from, from uh, those who I know are very uh, good speakers, and we'll, I think you'll be uh, enriched to come back next year. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, we've tackled a subject that calls us to our faith. It calls us to accept people of other faiths and to test our own. Pastor Dave inspired us today with a quote from a rap artist, Macklemore. And another quote that he had was this. When we vote love... It means that we vote equality, we vote for change, and we vote for what's right for humanity. I couldn't have a greater prayer for my friends. I couldn't ask any more that we learn truly the meaning of love, that we can coexist in love, in equality, mature enough to work through change, and to do what's right for humanity. But as Christians, we do this all according to your will. And as summer continues, and as our crops grow from seeds, might the seed that you plant in us continue to grow. And might we work out that growth. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Is it working now? Yes. Okay. I have never been known to be silent, though I have done silent retreats. All right. We come, this is a rare opportunity for me to be given in one of these classes the last word. So, um, this is a subject that is in some ways near and dear to my heart and I think goes to the very core of the question we've been examining, coexistence, is it possible? And one of the things that we need to assess in order to answer that question is 
Do we have any examples from history where it has worked? And one of the examples that the uh, proponents of coexistence always point to is Muslim Spain, Iberia, Al-Andalus, to give the Arabic origin of what we know as Andalusia. And so it was known at that time as La Convivencia, La Convivencia, and which literally means the coexistence. And as an opening symbol for La Convivencia, I have chosen this rather interesting figure here. This is the tomb of Ferdinand III of Castile, who died in 1252. It's in the uh, cathedral of Seville in Spain, which is not a city that's going to figure very much in my presentation. What is important is that this was well on into the period which is known in Spanish history as La Reconquista. And so this is a highly ambivalent symbol in many ways. It is inscribed in four languages, Arabic, Hebrew, Latin, and early Castilian. And what we see here are the Hebrew and Arabic inscriptions in that order from right to left. Remember that Semitic languages, we go from right to left. Reminds me of the visitor from France who was calling on Golda Meir and said, I want you to know that first of all, I am a Frenchman. Second of all, I am a socialist and only then am I a Jew. And she says, that's all right. We read from right to left here. but Hebrew on the right, Arabic on the left. Now, for some historians, this is a symbol of la convivencia, the coexistence. For other historians, it is simply another symbol of la reconquista, the reconquest of Spain from the Muslims by the Christians. So it is in some ways an ambivalent issue. So what are we talking about? La convivencia, the coexistence. It is a period of history, of Spanish history, from the Muslim Umayyad conquest of Spain in the eighth century until the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492 which was the beginning of a series of mass expulsions from European countries. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, from Portugal in 1497, and went, despite the promise to the Emir of Granada, the last Moorish kingdom uh, that was conquered by Ferdinand and Isabella, that Moors could remain in Spain, the Moors were also expelled. The Muslims were also expelled The basic idea is that in different Muslim Iberian kingdoms, Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived in relative peace. Now, I do underscore the word relative. There, you know, obviously were lots of incidents 
that occurred along the way where that was tested. But the important point is that historians say when you look at Muslim Spain and compare it with both the earlier and later periods of Spanish history, the contrast is glaring. Up until the Muslim conquest of Spain, in Christian Visigothic Spain, Hispania, the record of treatment of the Jews was nothing less than atrocious. It was some of the worst persecution in medieval Europe of the Jewish people. There were constant councils of Toledo which passed anti-Jewish legislation, much of which served as precedent chapter and verse, not only for later Catholic anti-Christian, anti-Jewish, excuse me, um, edicts, but also chapter and verse for the Nazi Nuremberg laws. And then afterwards, with the expulsion of the Jews and the Muslims from Spain, you had a period of Catholic hegemony in Spain to the point where we all know the stories of the Spanish Inquisition. Now, what is true and what is beyond dispute is during this period, there was a tremendous interplay of cultural ideas among the three religious groups on the Iberian Peninsula. And it was to the mutual enrichment of so many of them. So this was an extraordinarily rich period. In Jewish historiography, certainly beginning with Heinrich Gretz in the 19th century, this was known as the Golden Age for Jewish history particularly for Jewish poetry and Jewish philosophy. And I'll come back to that later. And it has, however, been challenged as a myth by some contemporary historians because essentially what they point to is a lack of any historiographic evidence from the Muslim side during this period. And so it's, it's, and there were some instances of forced conversion uh, or expulsions um, uh, from the Muslim side under some regimes. And I'll cover some of that. So that's why I said relative peace. Key dates. 7-11, the Muslim invasion of Hispania it was the period of the Umayyad Caliphate the, of Damascus, the rapid expansion. Um, this didn't quite come out the way I had formatted it, but that's okay. Um, in 732, the Battle of Poitiers took place. Charles Martel, king of the Franks, defeated Muslim invaders of southern France and brought the Muslim expansion in Iberia and southern France to an end. Okay. In 756, Abdar Rahman I became Emir of Cordova. He was the last survivor of the Umayyad caliphs who had ruled from Damascus. 
And with the change of dynasties, with the rise of the Abbasid Caliphate, which eventually made their capital Baghdad, um, he was the only member of his family to survive a kind of a massacre. He was invited to submit to the Abbasid Caliph, and he said, no thank you, already seen enough. And so at that point, he formed an independent emirate with his capital in Cordova and began the construction of the Grand Mosque of Cordova, which we'll take a look at a little bit later. 912 to 961 was the reign of Abdurrahman III as Emir of Cordova, and he was the one who declared an independent caliphate um, of Cordova. And this is the cultural apex of Al-Andalus. Definitely a time of great cultural flourishing. In 1085, to the north of Cordova, we had the reconquest of Toledo by Alfonso VI of Castile. And then, in 1492, the conquest of Granada by Ferdinand and Isabella. Granada was the last, as I mentioned, Muslim independent kingdom in the Iberian Peninsula, and this was followed shortly by the expulsion of the Jews. So this gives us some specific dates as a timeline. This, it's not a very clear picture because unfortunately you can't really see on the screen, but there's some extraordinary rib vaulting that you find. This is the Grand Mosque of Cordova. And when Europeans who came to visit the Mosque of Cordova, they were, they were thunderstruck by this use of rib vaulting. It had never been seen before with these arches within arches and so on and so forth. One Saxon nun with the almost unpronounceable name of Hrostvitha came and uh, she is, by the way, important as the first person in uh, Christian medieval Europe to write plays. Um, and she called Cordova the ornament of the world. The ornament of the world. And it was the one place where you could find the kind of learning that had become standard, particularly throughout the Muslim world, uh, especially in Baghdad at a, the original university, the first university created in the world, the Baghdad House of Wisdom. And this was, the Grand Mosque was what made Gothic architecture possible. That mathematicians, architects, other people who had seen the Grand Mosque basically um, said, that's a great idea, let's see what we can do with it. And as a result, you got the Gothic, birth of Gothic architecture in Europe. This involved advances in trigonometry, astronomy, surgery, pharmacology, many other things <coughs> were done in Cordova. Because one fact about the Grand Mosque at the time that that, you know, of Abdurrahman III, 
The library of the Grand Mosque of Cordova, which was one of only dozens of libraries in the city of Cordova alone, let alone other Muslim cities, had more books in it than all of Christian Europe combined. That's how literate a society it was. And uh, do we have any uh, high school students in here or secondary school students or any math students? Anybody here who is, who finds the cockles of their hearts warmed by the thought that the Muslims invented algebra and trigonometry? It's, yes, the fact that you had to learn algebra and trigonometry, blame it on the Muslims. And it was definitely the golden age of Hebrew poetry and above all, of both Islamic and Jewish philosophy. Now, I did a handout that you should have received these are a sample list of English words derived from Arabic. A sample list of English words derived from Arabic. And uh, a number of them, you know, uh, Admiral, Alcohol, Alfalfa, Algebra, there you see, Alkali, Arsenal, Assassin, yes, which, by the way, anybody know what the origin of the, the root of the word assassin is? Comes from the word hashish. The hashishi were people who used to take strong hashish before they engaged in political assassinations. They were a very obscure and fortunately short-lived Muslim sect. Balcony. Borax, camphor, candy, cipher, coffee, divan, elixir, nadir, sapphire, sherbet, sugar, syrup, taffeta, tariff, tobacco, tulips, yogurt, and zenith. Both nadir and zenith. Imagine trying to order a sundae if it hadn't been for the Arabs. Okay, we'd have had to come up with totally different new words. One I'd like to add is azimuth. Azimuth. A-Z-I-M-U-T-H. Azimuth. Anybody know? Got any geometers or astronomers here? What? It is, if you take a fixed star and you draw an arc, a vertical arc to the horizon, it is the angle from due north or due south, depending on which use you're putting it to. And can anybody think about a, an extremely important application of this term? Satellite, okay, but especially for something that followed shortly after the period of history we're talking about. It's critical for navigation. The voyages of European discovery would have been impossible without this terminology and without these advances in science and mathematics that basically the Muslims gave to Europe.
Now, we've been talking about Cordoba and we've been talking about the golden age of Islamic and Jewish philosophy. And let me tell you, this is one of the points at which you can really point to Cordova itself and say, wow, I have chosen two people to represent this, probably two of the most <coughs> significant philosophers in the history of philosophy. In Islamic philosophy, no one weighs as large as Ibn Rushd, who we know in the West as Averroes. He was a native of Cordova. He was born there in 1135, died in Marrakesh in 1198. He was known throughout Europe as the commentator. The commentator. Anybody know why? He wrote massive commentaries on Aristotle. Until Averroes' versions of Aristotle and his commentaries on them were translated, <coughs> something we'll get to, Literally, Europe did not know Aristotle at all. They had no knowledge of Aristotelian philosophy or science. Okay. And thus, he introduced Aristotle to medieval Europe and made possible the work of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas quotes extensively from Ibn Rushd. It's possible to say that Aquinas' entire theology would have been impossible without the work of Averroes. That's how important the man was. And as a symbol of his legacy, this is not a very good, um, pro doesn't project very well, this is a portrait, as it were, of Imen Rushd that was, is part of, it's a detail from a huge fresco, one of a pair, that Raphael, the artist, did for the Vatican Library, the School of Athens. The other was the School of Rome. So here in the Vatican Library, as part of one of the great works of Renaissance art done for the popes, included in it is this Muslim Arab philosopher, Ibn Rushd, because the contributions that he made to Catholic theology. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Plato actually, he's pointing up, you know, to the forms that is, you know are in the heavenlies, and Aristotle saying, no, they're found right there in the midst of objects. <laughs> that was the big debate. But the fact of the matter is, as far as Christian Europe was concerned, they wouldn't have known anything about the debate between Plato and Aristotle if it hadn't been for Averroes. <coughs> On the Jewish side, 
Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon. And from the acronym Rav Moshe Ben Maimon, we get his general Hebrew sobriquet, the Rambam. Rambam. Or, as we know him in the West, Maimonides. Moses Maimonides. Also born in Cordova. Somewhat later, he was a younger contemporary of Averroes and a great admirer of Ibn Rushd. He died in Fustat in Cairo in 1204. Okay, now what's interesting is he wound up all the way in Egypt, okay, because there was a dynasty, the Almoravids, who were doing some forced conversions. He had to flee first to North Africa and then eventually get away entirely from the Almoravid regime farther east. And he settled in Fustat, today's Cairo, where he became the personal physician of someone we've already met. Anybody know whose personal physician Maimonides was? Saladin. Salahuddin, the Fatimid caliph of Egypt. And by the way, the Fatimids were Shiite. So it's interesting. Not only politics, but history makes strange bedfellows, as it were. Maimonides was the preeminent figure in the Middle Ages in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish ethics, but above all, in Jewish law. His true magnum opus is a book called Mishnah Torah, almost like the second Torah. It is a massive, multi-volume compendium of Jewish law. And Maimonides took all of the vast legal discussions, comments, arguments, backs and forth in the multi-volume Talmud, and organized the entire thing into a systematic body of law, which included not only the things that are practiced today, but he is basically the only codified source how do you conduct a sacrifice in the temple? He has it all laid out completely. And also, one of the things during the uh, penitential season in the month of Elul and uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, one of the things that we used to study when I was in Jewish religious academies was his laws of repentance. He has detailed on how it is that you go about repenting and, you know, what it means to repent. He has also doctrinal considerations. He was influenced by Averroes, and in terms of philosophy, his magnum opus was a book that later became extremely important, especially in the birth of Reform Judaism, The Guide to the Perplexed. Now, he was a little bit cautious about how he wanted people getting this stuff. 
So, Guide to the Perplexed was originally written in Arabic using Hebrew letters. And so, it's one of those things where, you know, only a few could basically read it. There was a translation into Hebrew by Yehuda ibn Tibon, who was himself also a product of Muslim Spain, and uh, there have been translations into English as well. But the, I, I may have some more in, uh, inference, I need to say more about that Guide to the Perplexed. He is quoted extensively also by Aquinas. So essentially Averroes and uh, Maimonides both contributed to Aquinas' work. He is an advocate of what is known as the via negativa. And this is uh, the negative way of theology. And in the Guide to the Perplexed, I thought one of the most fascinating arguments that he came up with is the fact that essentially, because of the inadequacy of human language in trying to describe God, there are only two kinds of statements about God that you can make without falling into idolatry. You can say what God is not, and you can say what God has done. But the moment you try to say what God is, you have actually denied the existence of God and posited the existence of an idol. So his understanding of what it means to say God is love is, well, God is not hate. Because that, you can't say it positively. I may say a little bit more about how Aquinas basically developed this thought in terms of his concept of analogical reason, uh, use of language. And the basic saying that you find in Judaism, from Moses to Moses, there has not arisen another like Moses. That word got left off. In other words, from Moses, the lawgiver, until Moses Maimonides, there arose no one in Judaism of a comparable status with Moses Maimonides. That is his importance for Judaism. And notice that both Averroes and Maimonides were born in Cordoba. Now, going back a little bit from the 12th century into the 11th, a significant, probably the most significant event in many ways for Christian Europe in La Reconquista and possibly in La Convivencia occurred in 1085. Alfonso VI of Castile conquered the city of Toledo the city of Toledo in central Spain. It had been an independent Islamic kingdom. I love the way James Burke in his uh, series, The Day the Universe Changed, put it. You probably could call it more the nudge of Toledo than the conquest of Toledo because uh, the uh, Arab ruler was, you know, poison was the flavor of the day in court, and so he was not necessarily interested in hanging on to his throne. But in any event... The conquest of uh, Toledo by Alfonso VI and Castile, they were presented with something that they knew they had to deal with, 
but they didn't know how to do it. What they were presented with was more books than they had ever seen in their lives. Thousands of volumes. The problem is they were all in Arabic. And nobody in Alfonso's court spoke Arabic, knew Arabic. And they said, how do we, we this stuff is, looks interesting, but how do we get at it? And so the result of this process was what is known as the Spanish translations. The Spanish translations were one of the most important processes in European, in Western civilization. What it meant basically is that you had Jewish and Christian translators. There were Jewish translators who spoke and read Arabic and spoke also early Castilian Spanish. And you had Christian monks who came with Alfonso VI who were fluent, of course, in Castilian Spanish and also knew Latin. And so they sat down with all of these books and started the process of translating. It was a teamwork of translation. The Jewish translators would translate from Arabic into Spanish, and then the Spanish monks would translate from Spanish into Latin, and that's how we got all those Arabic loan words that were on the sheet you have. Because there were some terms for which they literally did not have a translation. And this included the works of Aristotle, the works of um, Arabic um, mathematics, astronomy, algebra, trigonometry, optics. It was um, a Muslim named Al-Hazan who at the House of Wisdom in Baghdad had done the first actual treatise on how the eye actually sees and laid the basis for the invention of the modern camera because they were, the Muslims are fascinated with light and so they basically did experiments with lenses. And it was building on that that an obscure Spanish monk whose name escapes me actually undertook by scientific modeling using uh, spherical vessels of water and managed to explain how the rainbow works first scientific description of how a rainbow works, based on Arab optics translated in Toledo. This stuff came flooding over the Pyrenees. And the result of this in the following century was what came to be known as the 12th century Renaissance. And it's what gave us Thomas Aquinas, Albertus Magnus, Siger of Brabant, it gave us the flowering of Gothic architecture. All of this stuff essentially came from this mixed interfaith culture. And in a, it's, it's fair to say that we would not have Western civilization as we know it if it were not for la convivencia. So we come back now 
to the scene where we started, to the tomb of Ferdinand III in Seville, and we come back to the question that has been the question that we've been basically dealing with throughout this course. Coexistence, is it possible? It is true that many people have challenged the idea of la convivencia as basically a myth, but the fact of the matter is it's hard to argue with the fruits of this mixed interfaith culture in Muslim Spain that gave rise to modern civilization and modern science. And the debt that we owe to this is incalculable. And to a certain extent, it does sort of show that it is possible that there are periods you can point to in history where Jews, Christians, and Muslims managed to live together in relative harmony and peace and actually have a vibrant and vivid cultural exchange for the benefit of the broader human world. But in, pers- in looking at how we go from here, I would like to turn the question on its ear in a way. And I would like to say, ask, is coexistence necessary? Is coexistence necessary? If you don't want to have constant fighting, I mean, look around at the world today. We have religious-based political violence on a scale that has never been seen before. And I'll be honest with you, I remember this, there was one time I was in my kitchen, I was washing dishes in the sink, I had the TV news on, in a little TV up in the corner of the kitchen, and it was during one of the very many flare-ups of violence in the Middle East, and I think it was somewhere in Lebanon that was going on. <coughs> Excuse me. I found myself looking up to the heavenlies and saying, Father Abraham, what in heaven's name did you start? And it was a time when I began to think very seriously about, and here, okay, got your brooms ready for broken glass? Is there a link between monotheism and religious violence? Between monotheism itself and religious violence? Let me unpack that a little. All three of the Abrahamic faiths share belief in one absolute, infinite creator God standing outside the creation and who created the creation as as a divine artifact. All three traditions also believe that this God revealed God's self in history to their community and that their tradition accurately transmits to them the record 
of that revelation. Now, in a very real sense, if God truly is transcendent, holy other, absolute, infinite, then in fact, self-disclosure, self-revelation is the only way in which God can be known. Because all of our knowledge is relative, finite, historically conditioned. But the irony is that if God is going to reveal God's self to a human community, that can only take place within the relativities and the historical conditions and the finitude of human experience and human culture. So there is a kind of disconnect between the absoluteness of God and the relativity of our understanding of God. To put it in the simplest possible terms, a little two-line poem of Robert Frost that I'm very fond of, we sit around in a ring and suppose the secret sits in the middle and knows. We sit around in a ring and suppose the secret sits in the middle and knows. The biggest temptation that each of the Abrahamic faiths may have and that all of us together share is to try to absolutize our understanding of God. To say, our revelation is the real revelation, our tradition is the accurate tradition, and therefore, we have the truth. And if you don't agree with us, that means you're simply in error. And that, my friends, is perhaps the most vicious form of ideology. Uh, when I was in seminary, I used to visit a, an accountant to do my taxes at the bottom of the mountainside. And I remember this guy, he says, well, the only thing it's going to save is Bible doctrine in your heart. And he kept saying over and over again, Bible doctrine in the heart, Bible doctrine. And I thought, <clears throat> I have never seen such an out-and-out -out case of what I would call bibliolatry in my life. Okay? It's as if somehow having, I don't know, you know, if, if they ever, I guess, did a post-mortem on him, I, what, what are they going to find? They're going to find Genesis through Revelation inscribed on his heart? I don't know. I'm sure he didn't mean that. But the fact of the matter is, this is one of the problems we have with the Abrahamic traditions, is that, if you will, our ontology and our epistemology our understanding of what is real and our understanding of what we can know and how we know it are not in sync. That there's a gap. And that seems to me to indicate one of the things that we really have to have is a high degree of humility, a healthy self-critical attitude and an attitude of reverence for those of other faiths. Because the alternative is almost unthinkable. 
Now, is there something from La Convivencia that might show us a way forward? Taking in mind Maimonides' admonition that you cannot in any unequivocal sense say something positive about God without, in a sense, falling into idolatry and taking into account <clears throat> that both Averroes and Maimonides had a certain influence on Aquinas, let's take a look at how Aquinas understood how we talk about God. Now, right now, the biggest change going on in my life is the fact that my spouse of 35 years, Carrie Stuman, is back in town. She's moved back from Florida to Ohio with all of her stuff, which has now been added in the house to all of my stuff. And we have way too much stuff. In the process of moving, she managed to create a stress fracture in the neck of her right fibula, so it's been a little bit of a strained issue in some ways. Um, I have an enormous, I mean, Carrie is a beautiful woman. She's a very intelligent, she's very accomplished. And the only question I have about her judgment is the fact that she married me. <laughs> but I think it is fair to say Zev loves Carrie. I do. Uh, I, I'm sure she could make some suggestions on how to show it better and how to do it better if she were here. And by the way, she's not here not just because of her leg, because she's been listening to me for 35 years. She doesn't need to hear anything more from me. Now, one thing that we all, I think, could agree on in this room is that God loves Carrie. Now, the crux of the matter obviously is you have this one word, this one verb that is the same verb in each sentence. And the question is, what is the relationship between these two word uses of the word loves? Aquinas gave us three possibilities. Univocal, equivocal or analogical. Okay. Univocal. One voice. What does that mean? It means that when I use the word loves in the sentence, God loves Carrie, I mean it in exactly the same way as I do when I use the word loves in Zev loves Carrie. And I think that we could all agree in this room that would not be good news. That would not be good news. I don't think we can even give away, get away with the sort of quasi-univocality of saying, if, if that's a word, 
uh, well, God's love is, you know, it's the same as ours, but it's just more perfect. It's a difference of degree. I think we'd have to agree that there's a difference not merely in degree, but in kind. I mean, I love Carrie for who she is. God loves Carrie into being who she is. It's a creative love. So, I think we can cross out the univocal. Just does not work. Well, what about the equivocal? The equivocal means that essentially it's the same word, but the meaning is totally different. And that God's love somehow or other is so different from mine, that God's love is so different from human love, that you really can't say that there's much in common in the way of meaning. Now, what problem then does that give us? Where do we understand and derive the meaning of our words from human experience? So if to use the same word for God that we use of human beings, if those have no meaning, what does that do to our entire theological language? It renders it meaningless. It means essentially that all of our statements about God can be reduced to a wow. And that's it. So what Aquinas suggested is that there is an analogy of being. We claim that, God, that humankind is created in the image and likeness of God. That means there must be some kind of analogy of being, analogia entis is the Latin phrase, analogy of being between human being and God's being. And that this gives us a way of understanding God by analogy, by analogy. Now, the, the important thing, and here's where the crux of the matter is, we can trust and have faith that there is some analogy, but we cannot know the extent of it. And that means that while our language about God is not empty of meaning, it is not literal in meaning either. It is metaphorical. It is analogical. And so, there is room for doubt. And there is room for difference of opinion. And there is room for speculation. Now, I want to suggest a different analogy for the way forward. One of the images that is sometimes used to talk about interfaith relationships is to use the image of a mountain. 
okay? We have this big mountain. And in order to climb this mountain, there seem to be several different paths that people can take. And the idea that people have is that somehow we may start in different places and it may seem like we're going in different routes that diverge from one another, but in the last analysis, we're all going to the same summit. And that if we just follow our own path and allow others to follow their own path, somehow we'll meet up at the summit. I think this is naive and simplistic. And so what I'd like to suggest is a real modification of this. Because at least to start with, What we find is that we have this mountain mass down here. And we have these different paths going up, but it ascends into what one anonymous English mystic called the cloud of unknowing. that at a certain point, we follow our path to the point where language, where understanding, where symbols, where ceremonies seem to break down. And we have entered that cloud of unknowing, what uh, St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the mind. Uh, And by the way, the dark night of the mind is just the prologue to the dark night of the soul. It's not fun. And so we tend to sit back, we draw back, and we sort of don't want to go into that cloud because it's just very scary. Instead, what we do is we sort of set up camps here on the mountainside, and what we do is we're calling across to the people on the other paths, you're on the wrong path. Come over and join us. We've got the right path. And they're saying, no, we're not on the wrong path. You're on the wrong path. You come over and join us. If we had the courage to go through that cloud of unknowing, I think what we would find is that we've been on one mountain mass but it has several peaks. And each of us has been going to their own peak. And if we follow it up to the peak, there is something that we will recognize. And that is that far and away above all these peaks, is this vast open expanse of sky. A vast open expanse of sky. And 
we all can see when we reach the peaks of those mountains that we are standing alike under the same vast and open sky and we can see each other and we can see that we are all standing alike under the same open sky. And that the important point of our journey was to reach the sky. To reach the sky. Now, let me close with one more metaphor. And it's one of the oldest metaphors in human culture. I'm a firm believer in what is known as narrative theology. When you confront a mystery, then one of the things that you have to do is realize you can't describe it. The best you can do is tell stories about it. I mean, after all, I heard one thing about how did God end up choosing the Jewish people? Okay. Oh, okay. It's on. Okay. We will um, we will develop philosophical vocabulary so that people will come to understand who you are. God said, "Well, that's an interesting idea. I will certainly take it under advisement." Then God went to the Romans and said, if I choose you for my people, what will you do for me? He says, well, we're not great philosophers like the Greeks, but we're great engineers. We are good at building roads and temples, and so we will build a whole system of roads leading to temples so that the whole world can come and worship you in magnificent architecture, traveling safely on these beautiful roads. And God says, that's a very interesting proposal. I'll take that under advisement. Then God went to the Jewish people and said, what will you do for me if I choose you as my people? He says, well, we're not really great at philosophy, and we certainly aren't great engineers, but I'll tell you what we are. We're storytellers. We're very good storytellers. So if you choose us for our people, we will tell your story compellingly so that people will be lifted up by it. And God said, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The oldest image for human spiritual activity that I can think of, probably going back almost to our Neanderthal ancestors, is sitting around the fire and telling stories. This is what we can do as Jews, Christians, Muslims, is sit around the campfire and tell stories. Not with the idea that somehow we are going to sit there and say, well, you're not telling it right. Because the right answer to that is, whose story is this? Okay. Now, where do we go from here? What's the next step? 
My brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but these last 10 weeks, to me, look like a pretty good first step. The United States has the unique situation of being the most religiously pluralistic society in history. It is also a society that takes the idea of separation of religion and state and pluralism and tolerance as very high and important values. There is no other society that I can think of that can serve as the venue for la nueva convivencia, the new coexistence. If it doesn't start with us, it ain't going to get started anywhere. So what we have to do is to continue to meet, to sit around our campfires and tell our stories, but make sure that we have the broadest possible inclusion of storytellers. We need not just Christians, not just Christians, Muslims, and Jews, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all of us being able to sit around and share our stories with one another. And it can start right here.